It's right before winter break, and my improv group is having our big fall show. The show is set up as a competition. I'm on stage with my team. The other team is huddled on their bench across from us. The musical improviser and scorekeeper stand on the sides. The scores are close, and it's my team's last chance to do a scene. We ask for a suggestion. Someone in the audience says, silent Greek tragedy. The lights go down, then come back up. Three of us stand on stage looking off into the distance. Chris is on the keyboard. He begins to play the sounds of a marching drum beat. We point to the distance and start to move forward, as if going into battle. Uh-oh, I think. What's next? But then I look up, and the three improvisers from the other team appear on the side of the stage coming towards us as the opposing army. Oh, of course. The music swells, the lights change to red, and we lunge towards each other in a slow motion battle, swinging invisible swords. I'm completely absorbed in the fight. When I look up again, I realize almost everyone else has died. It's just me and one other improviser from the opposing army left standing. Still in slow motion, our swords hit once, twice. Then on the third try, we both make invisible sword contact with flesh. We're both falling and, without thinking, I begin to fall towards her and pucker my lips. I move in, about to kiss her, just as the lights begin to fade and we both die. Lights out, audience goes crazy, end of show. This is why I love improv. It's my fourth year as a member of the Stanford Improvisers, or SIMPS for short, and it's moments like these that have kept me coming back for hours and hours of practices and performances every week. It's that feeling when I know that everyone else on stage is taking care of me. It's the energy that I get from performing for a full audience, one that will audibly gasp, shriek, and laugh. It's trusting that as soon as I can turn off my brain and just do the first thing that feels right, it will all work out. If you count my high school group as well, I've been a part of an improv group for the past eight years. But this is my last year at Stanford, and there's this question that's been nagging at me for a while now. What happens next year? What happens in the real world when there's not just the improv group that you can audition for? I have other questions as well. Is improv just a post-college thing? Is this group that I'm in now as good as it gets? The post-college world seems a lot more complicated. How will I earn money? Would it be possible to create a whole life centered around improv? And even if I could, would it feel meaningful? So this past summer, I tried to answer these questions. I interviewed three improvisers in San Francisco in an attempt to figure out just how exactly one goes about incorporating improv into one's future adult life. I learned a lot about how improv works in the real world and, you guessed it, a little bit about myself as well. First, I needed to know if it was even possible to make money doing improv. In concept, I'm a fan of art for art's sake. But in practice, there are certain financial realities that come with wanting to live in San Francisco. And things would be a lot easier if it were possible to make money doing improv. So I sat down and talked to someone who is making a living doing improv, William Hall. 
Hi, my name is William Hall. Uh, I'm an improviser, and I'm an actor, and I do a lot of teaching and performing. William is the founder of Bay Area Theater Sports, or BATS for short. BATS is the Bay Area's largest and longest-running improv theater and school. They celebrated their 25th anniversary this past year. William has performed and taught workshops with them the whole time. I'd seen him perform before, and over the summer, I took an improv class with him. But when William was my age, he never would have dreamed he'd end up working at an improv theater company. He studied theater at Boston University, then moved out to San Francisco to be an actor. Improv was something that scared him. But he got his first good introduction to improv in a rather unusual way. His friend, Rebecca Stockley, was over at his house. She had moved from San Francisco back to Seattle, but was visiting for a bit. They were making pasta for dinner, and William asked her about what she had been doing in Seattle. She said that she was uh, writing a lot of short stories. And I said, oh, that sounds cool. And she said it, she said it with such enthusiasm, it made me go, well, great, tell me one of the stories. And uh, Rebecca is a remarkable person, and, and she somehow got me to try to guess what one of the stories was. She just had this method of coming, well, come on, we're just making pasta. Just tell me, what do you think the story's about? And I remember I said space aliens. It popped out of my mind. And, and she said, she looked at me with amazement. She said, That's, it, it, it is. It is about space aliens. What do you think happened? So, over the course of about 10 minutes, William guessed the entire story. It was a pretty good story, as he remembers it, and he told Rebecca that he thought it was pretty good. But what she said next completely shocked him. And then she said, well, who do you think wrote that story? And I was like, what an odd question. And I looked at her and I said, well, you did. And then she looked at me and she said, no, you did. And it was in that moment that sort of time started shifting a little bit and slowing down and sort of some, some sort of uh, matrix moment for me. And I just went, what? William thought that Rebecca had written the story. But in reality, she had answered yes or no to his guesses, depending on whether his sentence ended in a vowel or a consonant. Without knowing it, William had created this whole story. I was astounded because it was a pretty good story, as I recall. And it was at that moment that this whole world opened up to me, and I realized that there are stories inside of us that, that can come out without effort. So, William had created a story without even realizing it. And that's when, as he put it, he got bitten by the improv bug. He bought a book on improv theory and exercises, he got Rebecca to come into his comedy group's rehearsals and lead improv workshops. And eventually, they all got a group together and started their own improv company, BATS. But when BATS started, nobody thought you could actually make a substantial amount of money doing improv. When we started, some of the old voices of improv in the area came to me, and they were friends of mine, and they said, uh, uh, you know there's no money in improv. And... Uh, and all, I, I couldn't argue with them because I think essentially it was true. But in my head, I think I was going, well, not yet. Not yet. Bats 
Cats formed as a nonprofit and started out by performing on the first Monday of every month. They performed in theaters that weren't scheduled for weekday performances. So each Monday night, we had like a different set to play on, and it was so much fun. And audiences started following us. It was, out, it was just outrageous, um, the amount of attention and excitement we got early on. They also began to teach workshops, and they kept growing. Soon, they switched from performing on the first Monday of every month to performing every Monday night. Then later, they transitioned to weekend performances. Then, they took a big gamble. We were doing a lot of performances down at Fort Mason and what is now our home was called the Bayfront at the time. And our, our, uh, one of our president of our board of directors said, we're going to move into the Bayfront full time. And I was one of the few voices that said, this is an crazy, insane idea. And I said, we can't even get staffing for our shows on Fridays and Saturdays. What are we doing with the Bayfront? This is a, 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 a weight around our necks. We've got to have to pay that rent month after month after month. But despite William's warning, they moved into the Bayfront Theater. Everyone volunteered extra time. They brought in friends to help with the business side of the company. They took a big risk on the theater, worked really hard to manage their finances, and it worked out better than any of their critics could have imagined. Today we've got six full-time staff members at BATS. Every time uh, one of our main stage players performs on the stage, they get paid, and they get paid well. It was inspiring to know that I could make money performing improv. Coming into this summer, I wasn't sure that this would even be possible, so it was exciting to know that there were at least a few people out there who got paid to perform improv. But William also went on to mention that he does more than just perform. He's also taken up other jobs related to improv. William and many other improvisers at BATS also get hired by businesses to do corporate leadership and communication training. Basically, they play many of the same improv games that they would teach in a beginning improvisation class, but they put on suits and teach those games to high-powered executives who will pay them a fair amount of money to lead those workshops. William's transition into the business world came through his comedy troupe, Fratelli Bologna. It started off as just a way to make some extra money. If you can make a group of business people laugh, hey, you got, you got some work. So... We were doing this fart humor stuff, and people really wanted that at their parties. And people were asking us, could you do this for business? Could you do this for off-site? Could you do this, come in and do a workshop on how to lighten up your presentations and how, how you could bring fun into the workplace? Then it began to get more serious. They became much more professional as a company and began to work with more and more businesses until they basically transformed as a group. The weird thing is that, you know, as we did more and more of that, the theater focus sort of left us after a while. It is tough. Any group that's doing theater, I just give them a, a lot of respect. That's a huge commitment without much compensation. Whereas if we went over to Amsterdam and did a conference, we'd make as much money in a couple of days that we'd make for a couple of months. And, you know, that's a hard thing to go... Okay, guys, but we're going to block out these two months so that we won't make any money. You ready? Let's go. So it was an interesting shift there. So by piecing together some performing, some teaching, and some corporate work, William could make money doing improv. He could both do what he loves and financially support himself. There's plenty of uh, uh, money in the coaching and in our corporate work when we go into corporations. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we're, uh, you know, like a NASDAQ stock uh, in Silicon Valley taken off, but it's, um, 
it's provided careers for quite a few people. So is there money in improv? Yeah, sure. with the way that William has managed to combine the thing that he loves with a way to make a living. To me, teaching corporate improv feels like the place where the theory of doing art for art's sake might collide with the real-world expectations of paying rent. I can't quite decide how I feel about corporate improv. Maybe it's creating innovative and new leadership in companies across the globe. Maybe it's selling out a teeny bit in order to make a living. Maybe it's a combination. Maybe it's something else entirely. I would love to have William's life. Don't get me wrong. But there is still this little part of me that wonders what the other options are for making money and creating meaning in the real world. William is not the only person in the Bay Area who has managed to make improv into a career. So, next, I sat down and talked with Dr. Nika Quirk. Nika researches improvisation and teaches its applications in the real world. As someone who has literally written a thesis on improvisation, I thought she might provide some insight into the other ways in which I could incorporate improv into my life. I'm Dr. Nika Quirk, and um, I'm just graduated from a PhD program at CIIS, California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Um, my degree is in transformative studies and my work is about how we can apply improvisation um, with leadership teams in order to build their capacity for collaborating, for being a really strong collaborative team. Currently, Nika is looking to work with more organizations to apply some of the lessons she learned from her thesis, as well as broaden her research even more. But this wasn't always something Nika knew she wanted to do, and she has had a lot of different careers on her journey to where she is today. In fact, her whole career has been a kind of improvisation. When Nika was 19, she was living in Pennsylvania and she thought she wanted to be a professional dancer. Since then, she's moved across the country to the Bay Area, she's gone to business school, she's performed and taught improv. And now she's a researcher looking for new ways to apply her work and expand her research. To someone like me, just about to step out into the world of real person jobs, this is a little intimidating. I can't even imagine having one career and Nika has had about five. And when I asked her about it, her thoughts on improvisation, careers, and life were reassuring. I don't know all the improvisational people in the world, but I know that there's a good portion of us who've signed up for what, you know, what I consider a continuously transformative life. And I think improvisational practice has something to do with that. Um, the... Um, Willingness to be reinventing yourself um, continuously and not because you're running away from anything or, um, or anything like that. It's more of a um, desire to be, re to be revealed in new ways. There's 
there is a certain irony to planning a career in improv. The logical part of my brain knows that thoroughly exploring my options and visualizing my life post-college are valuable things to do. But the improviser in me wonders if I'm going to mess things up by thinking about it too much. But maybe I can find a kind of balance. Improv can be a mindset that I apply to my own choices and life philosophy. For example, each summer I've been at Stanford, I've done something completely different. One summer, I did a service learning trip to Nicaragua. Another summer, I interned at a theater festival in rural Georgia. And this past summer, I lived in San Francisco studying improvisers. I did each of these things because they were the thing that I was most excited about or interested in that particular summer, even though there was no specific and linear goal to each of these activities. But looking back at all of them, they all helped me to learn and grow as a person. In retrospect, it makes sense that I did all of them. Just saying yes to these different opportunities and seeing where they led me helped me to explore different parts of myself, and I ended up in places I never would have imagined. And if living improvisationally during my summers made me happy, why not apply the same philosophy to life post-college? And for Nika, it's not enough to just talk about living improvisationally. She is researching the ways in which improv can play into our lives. Then she wants to use this information to help organizations. She began almost two years ago with a team of three women who wanted to start a nonprofit and an idea about the possible impact of improvisation on organizations. My original premise was um, that... There's something that happens in improvisational ensembles that practice over time that moves them from a group of individuals into being what in interplay we call a group body, where you really are an ensemble. You're moving as one. You're not even thinking completely separately anymore. And... Um, and I wanted to see what we could actually do intentionally to bring that into collaborative teams. So how can we transfer this experience? Through a research process called Artful Action Inquiry, Nika got her participants to do storytelling and improv exercises in order to explore the question of how they were doing as a team. So for example, there was um, one session where um, I suggested that each of them get up and, um, and do a movement and storytelling piece about what it was like for them right now to be part of this team. And so each one of them would, um, would get up and do their response to that. And then they sat and talked about that afterwards, you know, like what they, uh, what they heard, what they noticed, what that meant to them, questions that they had, that kind of thing. Um, it really enriched the conversation. So Nika spent months and months checking in with this team of co-founders and facilitating these types of conversations. As part of her research process, she also took formal notes journaled, and created art about her own research process. For research purposes, she couldn't tell me what the specific organization that she was working with was, but she did let me know that they successfully started their company. 
these were three people who were, you know, not artists in any sense whatsoever, but they were doing collaborative things that, um, that they said brought them from being um, ether when we first started working together to gelling as a group in six months. And their, their organization is actually, you know, gradually taking off. This made me hopeful. I had always been a little skeptical that improv could help people do their jobs better. But Nika had researched it and come up with strong evidence that there really might be something to this whole improv in organizations thing. And what better way to use improv than to help social justice nonprofits become more effective? From William, I learned that if you really work at it enough, it does seem like it's possible to make a living doing and teaching improv. And from Nika, I learned that it is also possible to use tools and skills from improv in the real world in order to help organizations creating social change. But the last question that was bothering me was, could improv be meaningful on its own? What I mean is, even if it's not being explicitly used in social justice organizations, does improv have the capacity to change people's lives? To tackle this question, I sat down and talked with someone who has made a living teaching, speaking, and writing about how improv can change people's lives. Patricia Ryan Madsen. I'm Patricia Ryan Madsen. I live in El Granada, California, and I will be 70 years old in December, on December 3rd. Patricia was the original improv teacher at Stanford. After years of teaching improv and watching the effect that it had on her students, she wrote a book called Improv Wisdom about how we can apply the lessons of improv to our daily lives. Her book includes lessons like just show up, say yes, and wake up to the gifts. One of her improv lessons that really resonated with me is the concept of celebrating failure. Especially as Stanford students, we dread mistakes and embarrassments. We hate screwing up and see any sort of mistake as a sign of weakness. But in her book, Patricia describes one of her big embarrassments. In 1992, she was head of the drama department at Stanford. At a prestigious event honoring the president of the university, she was asked to read some letters from Jane Stanford, the co-founder of the university. The event was in a beautiful outdoor amphitheater on campus, full of hundreds of very important members of the Stanford community. Patricia was supposed to go on after an orchestral piece that had been composed especially for this event. Eventually, the music came to a stop, and it was Patricia's turn. I rose and went over to the podium, opened my book, and began, And now, the words of Jane Stanford. And as I said that, the next movement of the music began vroom, right over top. Obviously, I had screwed up big time, and that was not my cue. And you could see the, um, the, the audience kind of um, start to giggle a little bit as they saw me. But there I was standing, and the orchestra's going on finishing. There wasn't anything I could do but close the book and go back and sit down and wait for my cue. And that's what she did. Finally, the song ended, the audience applauded, and it was Patricia's turn to speak. 
And then I got up and went to the podium, took a breath, and uh, opened my book and looked straight at the audience and said, and now the words of Jane Stanford. And there was a wonderful kind of chuckle in the audience because they all knew that I had blown it. But um, what was really kind of marvelous about that moment was that it was humanizing. I'm a professional and I made a mistake in public, a big, big public mistake. And I, uh, I like to tell the story because I learned that it's not about the screw up. What it is is about accepting whatever mistakes we make, um, seeing them as normal and human, and moving on. At Stanford, it can sometimes feel like everything is about being perfect. Perfect grades, perfect social life, perfect composure. And hearing a story about a really positive and humanizing mistake can be comforting. I would like to think that I've gotten better at making mistakes at Stanford. Whether it's getting up to demonstrate a practice problem in econ section or texting a guy that I like to see if he wants to hang out. I know that a mistake or an embarrassment is not the end of the world. And that's allowed me to be bolder and try more things while at Stanford. And I credit a certain amount of that boldness to improv. But Patricia's story doesn't end there. She wrote up her Jane Stanford mistake story for her book, and a couple of weeks ago, she got an email from a fan who told her how Patricia's mistake story had helped her in her own life. In this particular story, the fan dropped her sheet music in church choir and managed to remain calm because of Patricia's improv wisdom. But the next thing Patricia told me about this story surprised me. So I emailed back. I said, it's wonderful to hear from a reader who's found, you know, help in the book. Can you tell me how you found out about the book? Where did you hear about it? She says, oh, I live in Indonesia, and uh, I found it in a used bookstore here. And uh, I live in a small village in uh, Badabadoob. Wow. Imagine that uh, a book written in California ends up 10,000 miles across the planet in a used bookstore in Indonesia, and that a reader is able to get help in their life. From Patricia, I finally began to believe that improv could be meaningful on its own. I guess I had always known how improv had helped me in my own life, but I hadn't realized how broad its impact could be. There are a lot of issues in the world right now, and there are a lot of people trying really hard to fix them. And who's to say that improv isn't a valuable tool in this work? Patricia told me about a Sunday New York Times article that she was interviewed for. The writer was asking a number of different people what they would do if they were president. And Patricia said that she would make all the members of government play improv games with each other. Of course, that was um, lighthearted and... uh, uh, was, was something of a joke, but in a way I mean it. I think we've, part of the dysfunction in our current political situation is that we've lost the muscle that knows how to look for what's right and how to be agreeable. And maybe improv is one of the, uh, the, the tools of mind and body that could help our world um, get through this um, period of, of dysfunction into a time when we're working together more smoothly. So, um, Improv can help us uh, fix the world. 
This is definitely a lofty goal, but also pretty appealing. I guess I'm still struggling with the balance that improv will play in my life. If I were to just do as much improv as possible, it would really feel like sitting around and playing all day. And I can't tell if that would be a cop-out or a really meaningful activity. Can something be both fun and meaningful? If something is fun, does that make it meaningful? I really would like to believe that improv can change the world. So, what did I learn from my summer of improv exploration anyway? I learned that it is possible to create a life around improv. I learned that improv can be useful. I learned that improv can be meaningful. I still don't have a job. I still don't know how improv will play into the rest of my life post-Stanford. Heck, I don't even know what classes I'm taking in the spring. But I do know that improv is something I care about. And these conversations showed me that those things I care about will find ways to wiggle their way back into my life. And that feels good enough for now. There is something beautiful about the human, playful, curious spirit. We don't have to dance to live. But dancing is a great way to sort of celebrate your life. So, and I would hate to think of life without dance. So theater and that playful interaction and taking it out of the hands of the professionals and saying we all have this. And it's just about being playful. And when you do it with a group of other people that you can do it with for a while, you, you have a home in life, you have a community, you have sort of your place or your people or your language that you speak. And that can be very stabilizing and allow you some strength and flexibility for personal development. How does that sound? Good. Sound good? Good. Okay. <laughs> Not too lofty? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay.